0: Welcome to the Sacred Window Podcast. My name is Christine Devlinek. The Sacred Window refers to the tender, magical, and remarkable weeks following the birth of a baby. A birth giver is forever changed. Recognizing that this time is too often overlooked and misunderstood in our modern culture, we're setting out to be part of a voice for change and growth. We're growing awareness and broadening the reach of conscious postpartum care. Our podcast features friends and colleagues as interviewers. We're a loving community united by a common passion to change the paradigm of postpartum care to one that honors women, birth givers, babies, and families. We're glad you're here. And I will never be the same Welcome everybody to the Sacred Window podcast. My name is Christine Eck. I am the founder of the Center for Sacred Window Studies. I am so pleased to have my friend Shelly Rahim here today with me. Shelly and I have known each other for, gosh, almost four years now. Um, Shelly is from San Diego, California. She is a very experienced birth doula, Um, She's an Ayurvedic postpartum caregiver, a massage therapist. Um, She is a family educator, birthing from within, childbirth educator, and she's currently writing a postpartum cookbook. Um, Shelly's business is called New Mother Caregiving, and it is truly an honor to be with her here today. We are going to be talking about how to set boundaries as a caregiver when we are working in an underprepared home. This is in terms of families who may not have known all the ways that they could prepare for postpartum, or just circumstance may have limited the amount of preparation they were able to do. But as people who work with families in the postpartum window, we often are faced with how can we possibly support to the best of our ability when there are so many different ways that this family is really in need um, in terms of extra support? So, Shelly, thank you so much for being here. It's so good to see you and have you on this podcast.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm just honored to be here. And this is a very important topic. So, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, absolutely. You have
0: you've been working with families for such a long time. You know, you've, you know, you were just telling me you've been a, you were a prenatal yoga teacher for 15 years. And I know that many of your birth clients, you know, came to you um, through that, you know, avenue and, you know, studying with the center for sacred window studies and learning the, you know, Ayurvedic postpartum care. We've had conversations before about how difficult it is to be working in a home where you're the only one who's really looking out for the wellness and the healing process. Um, And there are so many cards stacked against you when maybe there's older children or, you know, a spouse who is busy at work or just family dynamics that are not helpful. Um, Tell me a little bit about what this has felt like for you and, and maybe start, you know, at the beginning of, when this really became evident that this was a real
1: issue. Yeah. I mean, the only reason why I can speak to this topic is because I myself have, you know, practically burnt myself out on caregiving because yeah, I'm the only, I am the tribe a lot of times, or I used to be, I've learned how to prepare my, my clients. I've also learned how to, you know, um, vet clients, (laughs) Um, but in those early days of offering this full sacred window care, as in going in and doing the cooking and the massaging and the belly binding um, and being with the mom for six to eight hours every day and seeing that, you know, the mothers of the mom or the mother-in-law or the dad, they don't really know what to do and have help. And also the mother herself doesn't know what her needs are or how to ask for those needs. So here I am with really high standards, thanks to what you've taught me at the center partly, right? Is, you know, this is what it should be like. You know, she needs to stay in bed all the time and be served her meals in bed, she needs to rest. She's injured inside her body and she's trying to produce breast milk. so at the center, we learn really high standards. And, but the general public is still, it's a different world in our culture. It's, it's very dysfunctional. And there actually are no standards. There just are none. Um, so when we go into this home, here we are, we have all this knowledge. We know what other cultures have done since the beginning of time and the Western culture has lost that value and we're trying to bring it back for obvious reasons. So, so important. There's nothing actually more important than this. And yet the consciousness or the awareness of the family is just not there. And they a lot of times don't even think it's problematic. So um, yeah, so I, myself, (laughs) those first few clients I had I, I had, I went in there and I way overextended. I didn't know how much time things took, first of all, right? Because no one's really guiding me. I'm not shadowing somebody. I, I'm, I'm kind of an entrepreneur. I'm, I learned from you guys online, which was amazing, but then going in and doing the work is a different, it's a different experience. So what I thought, okay, it'll take me four hours to book. You know and and i'll do a one-hour massage okay so i'll be out of there in like five hours it didn't work that way the cooking takes longer you're in somebody else's kitchen the mom is having a breakdown because her birth was traumatic so you need to stop and hold her and be with her and you know you realize like okay this took eight hours you know and an hour commute or half an hour each way so i you know how can i set boundaries next time how can i make this. So it's, I'm more efficient with my time and I'm also not overgiving. So that was, I've learned a lot over the
0: years. <laughs> yeah, you are so right. It really takes getting into the caregiving situations and being able to do it where it really begins to integrate. And it really starts, you know, those sort of, um, procedural, you know, how long does this task take, you know, especially when I am a new, you know, doing this aspect of care is new for me, Um, but also depending on what's happening in the home, you know, and I think that that was something that, you know, I've thought so much about of how we can go in with, you know, even more flexibility than we think we're going to need based on what's showing up today, what's happening today in this home, Um, yeah, I, I would love to hear a little bit about your process and sort of identifying where you needed to set some boundaries and how you sort of began to try
1: some of those things out. Yeah, sure. Um, I would say, well, of course, you know, I've given birth three times myself. And so I understand from my own personal experience what it's like those first six weeks. Um, And I'd I'd helped families before as in cooking or as a birth doula, visiting them after and just just different capacities. But I had not done like every day for three weeks or six weeks or whatever the the contract was um, as in the main caregiver. And so uh, when I started taking on that role Then that was when I realized, um, you know, 90% of the success of postpartum and my efficiency as a caregiver is in preparing these, these families during their pregnancy. And so once I could really put to, first I had to figure out, okay, I'm here to, they hired me to cook. Um, And they hired me to do massage and belly binding. Um, But, but then I also, that also means, you know, I'm cooking, but I'm also serving it to her in bed. You know, I'm also cooking actually for the partner because the partner's up all night too. And the partner doesn't have time to grocery shop or, I mean, he's doing everything that that the mom's doing almost except for breastfeeding, also recovering from the birth, (laughs) So it's really helpful like, okay, I'm gonna cook for the partner too. So I started adding on when I saw the need, I started adding on to my service, but I also would add that into my contract and increase my rates so that, okay, if I'm gonna come in and work to what I think is my standard here, what it should be, then I need to get compensated properly. Mm For my time and my energy, that's kind of one thing that I I learned. The other thing is, you know, like I said, is preparing them prenatally. So, you know, all these things that I was doing, all the different things I'm cooking and um, ways that I set up the infrastructure, you know, particularly for the mom as she's in bed, her bedside table, like her, um, all of her things in her bathroom where she's healing with her six baths and just the different types of infrastructure, all of this, if it's in place, you know, prenatally, then that saves me a lot of time. And the parent and the parents can do that themselves. Right. So, you know, I use bone broth, homemade bone broth. I give them my recipes. The bone broth is one of my like five daily essentials for healing. So, but bone broth takes a long time to make. (laughs) And uh, so I tell them that that's a task I give them prenatally. Okay, you guys need to have this much bone broth in your freezer. And so when I come in and cook, and I give them the recipes, if they want me to make it, then I charge extra for that. But when I come in and cook, if that bone broth is in the freezer, the food is incredibly nutrient dense, it's delicious and it doesn't really take me all day to make um, but the quality is still really high so all these little little things i've learned kind of really has helped streamline the process and so that i don't actually burn out
0: oh i love i love all of this so much i've had so many
1: conversations
0: and even some very recently about the preparation piece and how how vital that is to success for a family for a person who's recovering from birth but also for the caregiver because when we enter into a home where things are organized and ready and the awareness is already there our job is so much easier Um, and I think harnessing the There's so much preparation that happens during pregnancy anyway, you know, thinking about the baby and baby showers and where's the baby going to sleep and how am I going to, you know, all of those things. But when we as professionals can come in and start to piece through the key things that a family needs to think about ahead of time, which unfortunately is not on most people's radar at all. Um, I, I just cannot even emphasize enough how much of a difference it makes. I know just for me personally setting up and preparing for my own sacred windows, um, just having all the materials itself there, like having my you know herbal preparations, you know, in jars up on the countertop with little directions on them. So that whoever was going to be helping me in that moment you know, took all the guesswork out of it, that in itself settled down my, you know, anxiety or nerves and just seeing all the ducks sort of in a row um, creates a lot of pacification of any nerves or anxiety about how it's going to go too. Um, Yeah. I, I would love to hear a little bit about how that how you do that. So for example, like when you start to work with a new client, how far ahead of their birth do you like to work with them? And what does it look like for you when you are kind of coaching them on the preparation piece?
1: Yeah, that's good. That was a really good comment too, about the nervous system and how it settles when you have that preparation in place. I can give you some examples of that. It's funny, the client I just finished with literally like two days ago, it was her, postpartum caregiver for three weeks. She hired me when she wasn't even hundred percent sure she was pregnant yet. I think I'm pregnant. Are you available in August? (laughs) Um, but that's ideal. Like it, it's really important, you know, but, um, I like to have them start preparing at about 30 weeks is ideal. It's kind of chaotic when they hire me at, you know, I also do virtual support. So sometimes they'll hire me at, you know, 35 weeks. And I like, you've got a lot to do. I hope you're not working full-time as well, you know? Um, but it's, so a lot of the, it's, it's funny. Cause a lot of my clients have read the fourth trimester. They've read the first 40 days and they're like, oh my God, this resonates. This makes sense. But now what? And, and almost like their nervous system is even more upregulated because now they have the awareness piece and it makes sense. Like something in their cells has, has woken up now. And yet they have no tool to do it. Like, okay, I, I can't provide this for myself. There's just no way. And it's almost, almost psychologically worse for them because <laughs> now they know what they should be having. Right. And so it, you know, when they come to make and feel that I'll ask them when they interview me and, and I'll ask them, I'll say, okay, so tell me, you know, what have you done already to prepare for your postpartum time? And they're just, you can feel in their voice, like the anxiousness. They're like, you know, oh, I know I should have stuff, but I, I mean, I've had a baby shower and, you know, they, they don't know what they need to do. And so when I start talking to them about, okay, well, here's what I would, I'm going to have you do. Here's every recipe I'm going to use. And here's all the dry goods. Here's all the spices. You're going to stop your pantry. You're going to, you know, and and I have this master checklist for them. And it's it's like suddenly like, oh my God, thank God I can do something. I can start ordering things, I can start checking this list off that is going to serve me and help me heal so I can serve my baby. And so one of the examples I can give you that's really profound, and I can share this, it'll it'll also be in my cookbook and everything too when it comes out, but um it's I call it the HCA, the healing and connecting area. And so what I tell my families is that you will be sitting in your bed, you know, and right in your bed, you'll be there for at least a week all the time. Like the mom won't leave the bed unless she has like a nursing table or a nursing, you know, chair that she might sit there. But typically she's in the bed 24 seven for the first week, ideally the first three weeks and really won't get out of that, except for to go to the bathroom. <laughs> um, so it is really vital that her bedside table is really utilitarian. And I call this the healing and connecting area, HCA. And it's like, I have this whole list, like you're gonna, you need to have a thermos with your CCFT in there and a mug and make sure that thermos, you can, you know, you can open it with just one hand with your thumb. So you can, you're holding a baby. You will reach over and grab water. You need to have water. Someone refilling your water all the time, room temperature. You will reach over and grab nipple cream. You'll grab a, you know, a tissue, you'll grab a snack. You'll be grabbing over on that table probably anywhere between five and 30 times an hour. And I'm not exaggerating. So make sure that table is clean. Make sure it's large enough to support your snacks, your tissues, your water, your tea, your thermos and make sure it's of appropriate height. So one of my clients, um, she texted me a picture of her bedside or she showed me a picture of her bedside table. And I was like, well, why is it you know, so low? Like you're gonna have to, it was really low. Like for some reason it was just a very low bedside table. And I said, okay, well the reality is you're gonna be holding a baby. And every time you reach over, to get something, which will be between five and 30 times an hour, you're going to have to use your abs. And if you're going to use your abs, then your chance of diastasis recti are going to increase. So I would recommend raising that table up, widening the surface, get a new table, <laughs> you know, because this is where you're going to be sitting 24 seven for hopefully at least three weeks, if not six, while people are caring for you. So just like a little, it's like, The the success is in the details, little details that make, I mean, if you think about it, the the brain, what's happening in the postpartum brain is she is completely shifted out of her prefrontal cortex. So any work-related tasks, emails, like anything that's not about caregiving for the baby, she's in her amygdala. She's in a very primal caregiving place. So anything that has to do with task-oriented, like, oh, I need to refill my water, I need to go get some tea, I need to do... Anything like that is a real struggle because she shouldn't... She's supposed to only be in her caregiving... Our our brains and our bodies are designed to to uh, caregive to teach us how to take care of our baby. Uh, so if that's already taken care of, like you said, like... Can you imagine just how at ease already just knowing that, that that details in place brings tremendous ease.
0: It's so true. And to have just clear direction because it's not, it's not something we can rely on having seen before. You know, whether it's our mothers, our grandmothers, our friends, we can't rely on having it be this familiar process and just automatically knowing. So having a caregiver come in with some direction and checklists and, you know, explanations like that are so helpful. Um, Yeah, I, I am wondering about, I know we've talked before about sort of the empathetic nature and vulnerability that we often have as caregivers and how it can be very difficult for us to set emotional boundaries when we're working with a family and things may be really heightened or difficult at times with a family. Um, And we may be witnessing a scenario where there are not enough helpers or we wish that there you know, we had other people with us to be sort of helping us, um, how has it been for you in determining how to set some emotional boundaries so that you're not leaving the caregiving situation feeling down or burnt out or, or emotionally drained?
1: Yeah, that's, that's also like a a discipline and a spiritual practice, a lifelong practice, which I have not mastered. And and I'm, I'm constantly, um, working on it. And one of the, um, one of the things that has helped me a lot is to, um, to know that, you know, um, when I dive into caregiving. I put a lot of love and I, and I do tend to treat my clients as if they were my own daughter. And you know, and I am an empath, and think all mothers are. A lot of us enter this work from motherhood, potentially even from our own suffering, from, you know, a place of like what we didn't get. And so we want to prevent others from that suffering. So it's really important to, to check in and um, know like where, you know, where the, the giving and the love is coming from and it can be, you know, that we are, the beautiful thing about entering this work from our own experience is that we have this compassionate heart. And how beautiful is that? That we, we are empathic, we understand your pain and suffering because we've been there. And there's tremendous uh, potential to heal with that love and that empathy. Um, yet we can get triggered too, right? So we can go into a home where the mother is neglected and, and she's really abandoned, really, you know, and we're the only ones there. And we're also the only ones that really even think that this is abandonment. <laughs> um, and sometimes that can actually trigger our own abandonment stuff too. So if that happens, you know, we've had to kind of, I've had to learn to, to really like check in with myself and notice if I'm actually kind of triggered right now. And, and if I am triggered by it, if I, and I might not be consciously making the connection in that moment of like, oh, this reminds me of when I was abandoned or whatever. It's not even obvious. It's like, there's just this like nervous system response from me where I'm like, oh my God, I've got to fix this, you know? And when it's coming from this place of like, I need to fix this, this is so wrong, this is horrible, um, then that's a, a red flag for me that like, okay, this is, you know, kind of touching on something within me. And if that happens, then, you know, luckily I've done enough work to, to notice it. Now, I didn't used to. <laughs> um, and And I can kind of like step back, like pause, And I usually, what I'll do is I'll breathe into my heart. I'll just like kind of remove myself for a moment, go into the bathroom, go outside and and really just breathe into my heart until I can, and literally feel myself down regulating. And then from that, from that place of groundedness, then I can be like, okay, Mm -hmm. this is a lot right here. Um, You know, what's going on is a lot. What can I do right now in this moment? What skills do I have that can help in this moment right now? And so then there's a shift uh, from wanting to like fix it and like, oh my God, this is so horrible. And this is like traumatic to, okay, this is the a, a situation and here's what I'm going to do now. That's the tricky part is it might not be what they actually hired me to do. And so I'm contracted to cook. And now, you know, maybe this mother, you know, I come into the scene and she's curled up in a fetal position. Her baby's screaming. The dad's out with the toddler somewhere. She's having a traumatic response from her birth. And, you know, I need to, I'm like a first responder in the scene. And so do I go in the kitchen and I was contracted to cook. So I'm going to go cook. It's like, okay, I need to stop. and I need to hold this mother right now. And maybe just listen without trying to fix it or change it or blame the system or anything else hold her and help to reground her, you know, and then potentially maybe I give her a mug of tea or a bowl of tea or I bind her belly to help ground her you know, but an hour has gone by and I still have four hours of cooking to do. (laughs) So so then it's like, okay, reassess. Okay, how can I now cut back some of the cooking? Maybe I was gonna make snacks, tea and a big pot of Okay, maybe I can simplify the stew and she doesn't need snacks, she has snacks already. Um, So, you know, trying to honor my own needs in the situation while also showing up and providing what's needed in the moment. I love how you just gave such a
0: beautiful example of the flexibility that's needed. And I think ultimately when we're going into a postpartum situation, particularly under the challenges that our culture presents in terms of lack of all of the support that we culturally need, We can kind of expect to have to do that just one-on-one time. Let's just have you be heard, have you be held, have you be validated, be able to talk through so that you can process this whole transition and the different steps that it takes to be able to fully process birth, be able to fully process becoming a parent, be able to fully process the change in family that's happening um, and how that affects You know, the partner relationship, like that is such a big element that comes into play so often, too. And so I really, you know, I think you're right. I think, you know, that time that we're spending just listening and talking and holding space kind of just has to be expected that we're going to do that. But I love how you sort of mentioned, because some days it's going to be more needed than other days. And so when it cuts into the time that we have allotted to be there, because we have our own families, we have our own, you know, obligations and lives. And so we can't, unless we are, you know, being hired as a live-in caregiver, which sometimes happens, um, ultimately we have to leave when it's time for us to leave. And so how can we then adjust and, you know, simplifying the food prep, simplifying the other things that we do is just a really beautiful thing. And I think that we can connect with clients ahead of time and sort of give a heads up that that sometimes will happen, that the caregiving is very fluid based on the needs of the day. And ultimately I kind of think that that really can help settle any uncertainty As a parent, you know, when I think about how it's felt sometimes to have people come in postpartum to help, and I've witnessed this with clients too, though it's, they're more polite about it um, than I am with myself, but it feels a little like you want to take care of the caregiver, like you want everything to be easy for them. So then that kind of can come at the expense of feeling and doing too much or taking on a responsibility, as you were talking about, sort of the brain, what the brain is able to do as a postpartum person is not the same level of task completion that we may be so good at at any other time in life. So, the ability to take care and sort of organize space for the caregiver, which, you know, an example of just think about how often new mothers, new parents feel like they have to take on entertaining guests that may come in and it's very difficult. So the ability to have an understanding ahead of time is this is what I'm being hired for. And it also comes with a heavy dose of flexibility for whatever you're gonna be needing in that day. And it could look like this, or it could look like this. And we just, within the structure that we create, we leave room for a lot of options and a lot of change as needed.
1: Yeah, that was really well said. And that's what I, once I learned that, I started putting that in my contract. And um, I became also very clear in my contract too about this idea of this is the flexibility we need to have. right? Because the birth of the mother, the birth of the parent is the same as the birth of the baby. Right. The labor you don't know, like there's all this uncertainty, there's unknown. We don't know if, if what complications might arise in the birth. Right. So that's the same with the birth of the mother is we, you know, we don't know that first week is she, is she going to come home with an injury or is there, you know, is there breastfeeding complications? Is there, you know, what thresholds are we going to cross today? We don't know. And So there has to be that space for flexibility, but at the same time, we also have to have that boundary for ourselves so that we can continue to serve and give.
0: The sacred window is an idea that we can all find ourselves in need of during times of our lives where we are tender, in need of extra care, and transforming our understanding of self. The concepts of care we give to new parents can be applied to ourselves in honor of ourselves, to build resilience and grace in how we navigate this life.
1: What I realized after doing the work was, you know, that first week, so if they've hired me for six weeks, or even just three, or whatever the contract is, I know that the first week is the most labor intensive for me. They need help with the sits, baths. They need, you know, they, they are not mobile at all. They need help. I mean, it's just, there's, a, there's a, a, a lot larger list of tasks for me during that, you know, that first week. So I put in my contract, it's about an average of eight hours a day. And so when I and when I tally up my hourly rate for that week, then it's based on an eight hour day. However, you know, now I've been in their kitchen for a week. I've, I've got, and I can move through their kitchen really comfortably now, I'm, I'm faster. You know, it takes a while to orient. Uh, I've kind of got this. we've got our system going now. Things are flowing. So then week two, week three, usually if things are going smoothly and there's not a lot of complications, it's, I usually base it on a, a six or a seven hour work week. And if I go eight hours one day and I'm five the next, you know, I explain to them, that's how I charge. And so if I'm here for five hours one day, but I'm, I'm not keeping, I'm not clocking in and clocking out, but this is, these are my services this is what I'll be doing, but there needs to be that for that flexibility.
0: I like that. So you sort of set your boundary and then within that you give a lot of grace and flexibility. And I, I love that. That feels really, that feels really attentive to what your needs and effort really actually are. And I think so much of Um, a challenge for people who are in the caregiving profession is needing to sort of learn how to acknowledge what the work is that we're actually doing and that it is really very important. And so when we're sitting and spending time holding space and talking, oftentimes I've heard so many people share that they feel bad, that they're just sitting there and they're not doing anything. And I'm telling them, oh my goodness, what you're doing is the most needed thing in that very moment. So however your time is spent there, it's valuable and it's important and it should be part of your caregiving and
1: considered a part of your caregiving. Yeah, we didn't mention this, but I have 10 years of experience in birth story listening and birth trauma healing. And I, but I can tell you about the patriarchal culture that we live in, the wounded patriarchal culture, honestly, is that it doesn't value the emotional body, right? Even just the care that we get, it's all about the physical body, even birth plans that we create. It's like, okay, what do I want done and not done to my physical body? There's no ad, there's no like preparation or acknowledgement of the emotional and psychological body, hence why we have such a high postpartum depression rate. So sitting and holding space for a mom as she processes her birth story is as important as you know attending to her wounded body. Um, so, that's why it's like, we feel like, oh my gosh, I'm just sitting here and I need to go do things, right? Because that is what's valued in our culture is, is that masculine, you know, do, do, do task oriented. And so, um, and the thing about birth trauma, and I, and I don't even mean like every birth is traumatic. And I just mean that birth is intense, no matter how smooth or how complicated your birth was, there are going to be moments that you will need to process and integrate there's beautiful moments and then there's challenging moments and the thing is is that you know like we think oh okay well in six months I'll go start talking about it to a therapist but that's not how integration works right we have all this trauma this emotional uh psychological you know undigested experience which is so big and we're caring for a baby, we're trying to heal. And the way that, the, the way that integration of the birth story really works is like, you know, she'll be, it'll be a moment, like one moment will replay over and over and over. And it's like, Oh man, I can't get that moment out of my head. You know, baby, they will be feeding the baby. And then that moment's playing it over and over. And then, you know, I'll ask, so how are you today? You know, you know, what do you, how, how is, you know, how was the birth? Is there a moment that you want to share? And that that moment that's going on in her head, like a broken record, is the one that needs to be processed. And it's fresh and it's alive. And when you can process it in that moment, then it becomes digested. And and that's what the that's what I'm doing when I'm when I'm you know pausing and saying, okay, let's take a moment and let me check in with you. How are you today? What's going on for you emotionally and psychologically, and that's as important as as feeding her physical body.
0: It is, and you know, in Ayurveda, the, the understanding of perfect health that we strive encompasses the physical body, the emotional body, the spiritual body, the sensory input, um, all of those, as well as how we process and eliminate waste. Um, All of that is part of our definition of health. So the ability to simultaneously attend to the body, making sure we're remembering how to help them with the emotional processing. And I absolutely love how you just broke that down into such a digestible act of, you know, tell, tell me about a moment that's coming up for you, because it's so true. There is like these key moments of birth that just replay for all of us you know and I love how you pointed out that every birth needs to be integrated no matter the ease or the speed or the duration or the you know the complications it's different every time but it's magnificent and the simple magnitude of it is something that all of us have to process. And so being able to have someone help facilitate in a way that breaks it down into something doable that we can take one piece at a time and move through is so powerful. Um, And yes, I, I really appreciate you acknowledging that the patriarchal patterns that we have disconnect us with the value of health on that level and meanwhile so much in our world is is pointing us to mental health and emotional health yet the routines and the patterns and the support systems are not actually attending to them in the way that they could so much more help to heal it so I think for you know, birth, the work that we do in postpartum care and birth work, um, this is a really perfect place to be able to help. Uh, and, and I think, you know, once someone has sort of experienced processing in one situation in their life, don't you think that it can then give them the skills to then use those same tools to do it maybe, you know, when their children are older and they're going through another, you know, this is, we don't just arrive at balance and then just stay there. We're, we're living and, and changing and reacting and interacting with life. And so the skills that I've learned during the sacred postpartum window on really listening and paying attention to my body, my heart, my mind, uh, my senses has carried
1: me forward. And I've been able to apply that in so many other places. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, somebody who is a caregiver who understands that potency of taking the time and that's what it is, Christine. It's time. It takes time. It's time for me to spend eight hours every day with a mom. And that's what people don't have. It takes time for me to just stop with my checklist of things I have to do and just sit with her. And that time that we integrate, it is, very deep healing happening and it is nuggets of wisdom and integration of who she is and she's becoming as a person for the rest of her life that she's going to take that strength that power that courage that she discovered that self-love that compassion that she has now where she maybe had felt judgment about herself for a choice that she made during her birth um is now going to shift into a place of power and wisdom and that will inform how she sees herself as a mother it really will it's very very important so yeah holding that space vital
0: you've talked to me you know with your birthing from within um you've talked to me about the importance of connecting with archetypes as a way to strengthen yourself as a woman, as a professional um, and, you know, as a way for birth givers to sort of integrate their own power and talk to me a little bit about how that connection with archetypes has helped you heal and how you've used that to help
1: offer healing to the people you work with. Yeah, I, I love archetypes. I'm really grateful for Birthing from Within for introducing me to this, uh, it's a Jungian psych- psychotherapy kind of um, way of of um, understanding the self. And let me just explain what an archetype is. So for those who don't know, aren't familiar with that word, uh, an archetype is Basically, it's a way for us to organize all of our our behaviors, our personality traits. We can kind of like compartmentalize them and give them their own identity. So it's a way of organizing our psyche so we can make sense of our behaviors. And then we can, once we can kind of give them their own identity, we can choose to like to, uh, to, choo- we can choose to be in an archetype or maybe choose to be, be in another archetype that's of a higher vibration or quality. So, for, let me give you an example. Um, for example, let's just use caregiver that is an archetype. So, what are the qualities of a caregiver? Somebody who nurtures, who takes care, who's altruistic, who selfless who you know who's loving and nurturing so those are so then we can go okay those are the behaviors of that archetype the caretaker the caregiver um you also have you know there's there's so there's high very high archetypes ones that we aspire to be in especially when we're in this profession such as the caretaker is a high archetype caregiver but There's the warrior, there's the sage, there's the healer, the wise woman. You know, you can give them whatever name you want. And I have this whole like family in my brain of, (laughs) of, you know, I need to be in my healer right now. I need to be in my wise woman, you know, but there's also archetypes that I kind of, I don't like calling them lower, but I call them child archetypes. So these higher ones, these, the sage and the warrior, uh, and even the mother is an archetype. And, and I like to, I like to use the word mother because it, it embodies like that selflessness, that, that courage, that, um, you know, dedicating your life to another human being. And, and honestly, anybody can be a mother, right? Regardless of your genitals, it's, it's an archetype in, in all humans. And especially if you're caring for another child. So so that's an archetype in itself. Um, so there's the adult ones, the very high ones, and then there's child archetypes. So what that means is when we're a child, let's say something traumatic happens, or you know maybe something that's just too much for a child's nervous system to integrate. And so what that child does is kind of develops a coping mechanism. And so it becomes un- kind of unhealthy if we don't heal it later in life. So let me give you an example, a child who perhaps I'll just give you an example from my childhood, even though, um, my mom and I have a great relationship and she can listen to this podcast and, you know, be very happy, (laughs) but, uh, I was an only child and she was a single mom and I was in daycare and I was a lot of times I was the last kid to leave daycare and I had to eat dinner with the family and I just wanted to go home and be with my mom. And, um, so I felt orphaned a bit. I felt a little abandoned. And, and so in that, you know, I didn't know at the time, I didn't know until I got into my 30s and 40s and to work, but I identified with that feeling of, oh, wow, no wonder I kind of tend to feel abandoned, you know, sometimes. And, and what happens is when a child feels abandoned and an adult doesn't really show up for them in the way they need them there, They'll develop this coping skill, and one of the coping skills of an orphan is to be fiercely independent. It's like, all right, I'm not, I don't like this feeling of unworthiness when someone doesn't show up for me. It doesn't feel good, so I'm just not going to rely on anybody else, and I'm just going to do it myself. And so then there's this like fierce independence that can kick in in order to avoid that feeling of unworthiness and abandonment. Um, and this can really be magnified in the postpartum time because our culture pathologizes asking for help, right? And so, you know, like number one, that's already a problem. Number two, most of the parents that are have given birth are abandoned and so they are orphaned. Um, and yeah, so that's, so then what happens is that, that, that archetype, which is the orphan, can be a way we cope our entire life if we don't do the healing work uh, so then let's let's go back to the caregiver so we are in a caregiver we're in the archetype by doing this work and there's we can also check in with ourselves because there's there's the the wounded caregiver right so sometimes I have known like I mentioned earlier in our talk that, when I'm in that mode of like, oh my God, this is such an injustice. I have to fix this right now. And I will overwork until I go home and I just drop dead because, you know, I have to save this person from the situation. It's so horrible Then I know I'm, that was definitely coming from my wounded, the wounded caregiver uh, or the orphan archetype. So when those, for me, when I have this Lovely archetype in my in my brain. I can know when I'm kind of triggered, like my orphan is activated, and I can give her compassion. I can be like, "It's okay, little Shelly. <laughs> you're you're gonna be fine. This is just little Shelly, you know, orphan. You know, just soothe her. But call on my own love warrior. A warrior is a very high archetype. So that will call on, the, on your love warrior. Call on your wise woman." do with her it sounds kind of you know like I'm having this conversation with myself but it works (laughs) and then my love warrior will kind of okay just breathe into your heart you know let's get grounded and then I can let the higher parts of myself those higher archetypes kind of take charge and I can do what I need to do to shift and um So that's why for me, I can, I can have that internal dialogue and I can actually identify using archetypes. Okay. What, what needs to show up right now in this moment? It needs to be my warrior. It needs to be my sage or my healer. Um, so yeah, so there's a whole bunch of archetypes, uh, that I, I have in my little internal family (laughs) system that, um, that it's really, really helpful.
0: Oh, it's so empowering about listening to you describe that is, is, recognizing that we each have all of those beings within us. So we don't have to categorize ourselves as, oh, I am this, and this is just what I am. And I'm sort of out here and all I got is this we have so much within us. We have the warrior, we have the mother, we have the caregiver, we have the orphan. We also have the healer and the wise woman. We have all of these. And so when we are in need of balancing one of them, that's taking too much of our, you know, sucking, you know, things that we don't want to let go over. We just need to balance. We have the tools and we have the ability to, to bring balance within our own being, instead of relying on, well, I can't be healed unless I go to this person or that place or do this thing. Um, It's very empowering. I think that that's also something just in terms of having awareness about all the ways that the postpartum window can be sacred and can be healed and wellness can be facilitated just when there's a knowledge about what we're not taught in our culture so i just i love that so much because i think that it helps us to create it helps us to create tools for use whenever we need them and it helps to create connection between other people you know when people are able to connect with each other through an understanding a shared story Um, with these archetypes, it's so powerful to me. And I love that you incorporate that into your own understanding of self and your role as a caregiver and how much more compassion we can have for other people when we're like, oh, I can see that this energy is coming through them now. But I also know that they've got this other energy that we can connect with and
1: help them. It's so beautiful. Yeah, it's a wonderful tool of our self-awareness. And if we don't have the awareness, right, if we're in reactive mode, like I've been myself so much and fix it and frantic and knowing that it's coming from that lower, I hate to say lower, but, you know, more like the child archetype that hasn't integrated or healed from those, those wounds. Um, if we don't have the awareness that we don't have them, we don't have a choice, we're just gonna keep going, right? But just the awareness is so huge and so empowering. And then we're modeling that for a family. So, and we're not shaming ourselves, right? It's like, oh, here, here comes my own, you know, we, oh my gosh, we have to have so much compassion for ourselves because we witness so much injustice. It is just wrong. And we need to have tools to process that, otherwise we will burn out. We cannot take it, it's too much. The dysfunction of our, the state of postpartum in our country is, it's just upsetting. And so we need to have these tools. We need to, you know, whatever resonates with you to be able to keep going with this work. Um, And then we have that compassion for ourselves. And then what we're doing when we regulate ourselves in that way is we're modeling that. Like like you said so beautifully, Like, I know I have this in me. I have a wise woman in me. She might not be showing up right now, but she's there and I'm calling on her. The, the, this person that I'm supporting right now, they also have that. And I don't expect them to be able to call on it right now because they just went through the greatest rite of passage of their entire life. And the journey of discovering it it takes time. So they're gonna feel all these things. And and I'm there to know what it feels like and to hold space and know, yeah, and that wise mother archetype, or the healer, you're the healer of your life. It's in there. I'm just holding space for you to find your way to that archetype.
0: Mm, that's so powerful. Thank you so much, Shelly. I feel so buoyed by this conversation and just I just feel great and I feel like this topic is one that is so important for people in our field to be able to sit and reflect on we are doing such work under such dire circumstances and I really appreciate your reminder of that because we can only do what we're able to do under the situations that we are put into and the beauty that comes with giving in that manner and doing this work, which is so desperately needed. Um, It's a really good reminder to hear about um, the way you so beautifully described it. And I just wanna thank you so much for being here to share your wisdom with us. Um, Is there anything that you are feeling that you would like to add to this conversation?
1: Yeah, I actually wrote down a few tips. I was thinking, okay, what are some of my tips and tricks for honoring my time and energy? And some of them we already kind of went uh, went over, but I'll kind of just list them and I can put them in the show notes too. Um, I kind of categorize them into two uh, two categories. So there's kind of practical tips and then there's the emotional tips, the emotional, like the empaths, right? The emotional caretaking for ourselves as caregivers. Let me start with the practical tips. Um, So one, one thing I learned is to create a hard stop time. So that first week when I'm, I know I have to be flexible. Maybe I don't have as many hard stop times during that first week and a little more flexible. But after that, you know, I will actually verbally get there and I will say, To my client, today I have to leave at two to pick up my son from school. (laughs) Just verbalizing it, and they know that I have to leave, that it helps to create the frame for my caregiving and the boundary. That's one tip that I've learned. The next thing is adjust your contract each time you add a service. So you're going to learn as you go. And each time you add something that you know is pretty important, but it takes time, just Add that to your contract and add that to your time. Uh, the next thing is, um, I think I might have already mentioned this, but number three, vet your clients. So, if you are doing in initial conversations where you're doing initial consults, then you know if you're getting red flags that this might not be a family that's that kind of gets it. This might not be a family that's a good fit for you. Listen to those red flags and. You know, don't take that that, that family on. Number four, uh, say no to taking on too many gigs. I only take one sacred window at a time. And if you can, and I give myself space between. I don't like to have them back to back to back to back. I need that time of integration. So I would say, say no. Uh, Number five, be very clear on your contract about what you do and what you don't do. And give examples, right? Like I, I clean all of my dishes that I make. I don't do your dishes from the night before, from your dinners and things like you need to do your own dishes. You know, when I'm not here and you just be very clear about what you do and you don't do. Number six, avoid getting into the situation in the first place of getting into a home that's underprepared. So prepare your clients like we talked about. Um, and number seven, increase your hourly rate as you start developing more skills. So that if you, you know, if you do, oh, you know what, I spend extra 15 minutes today um, doing this for them just to out of love for this family, then you don't feel like resentment because you're getting paid pretty darn good. You know what I mean? So feel good about your pay. So those are kind of my um, so, seven tips for you know practical. And then here's um, my emotional caretaking and, and boundary setting. Um, basically what we talked about earlier about how to not take your client stuff home. Um, so what I do to process the intensity of the work is I call a friend on the way home. So have a buddy, somebody in the industry who gets it, uh, maybe a fellow student who you can call And sometimes I I have a friend who we call each other and we leave epic voicemails. Um, Number two, write out your experience. So give yourself the time when you've had an intense interaction to write it down. Journaling helps to, you know, slow the brain down. Um, Number three, I draw. So drawing is another way. Draw out your story, your experience, and that slows down. It takes you into different places of your psyche so that you can um, so you can learn and discover new things about what you've learned. And then also the thing I do is sometimes I'll just, I don't have time to do those things. I'll just speak into my voice memos and I'll just kind of barf the whole intensity into the voice memo so that at least it's going somewhere.
0: Yeah. I That's that. That's so great. I think that that is again, like coming back to having direction. It's one thing to know we need to set boundaries. It's one thing to know that we can organize our care to better support ourselves, but to have the tips and suggestions from someone who's gone through it is wonderful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you so
1: much for having me.
0: This has been fantastic. Again, we've got Shelly Rahim here from New Mother Caregiving in San Diego, California. And I look forward to collaborating with Shelly in so many more ways in the the weeks and months and years to come. Thank you again, Shelly. Thank you, Christine. How can you bring something sacred to your current window of time? What do you have to offer to someone within their sacred window? We honor you for all you give and for who you are. Thank you for listening. The Sacred Window podcast is brought to you by the Center for Sacred Window Studies. You can visit us to find out more about our online training and mentoring programs, plus resources and products for and about the sacred postpartum window, at www.sacredwindowstudies.com. Editing of our podcast recordings is done by Sienna Butler and our music is written and performed by Sarah Emmett. You can hear more of Sarah's music by visiting www.sarahemmett.bandcamp.com.